So as we just chanted, we can we can call on the Buddhas and ancestors. Can you hear okay? <clears throat> we can invoke the Buddhas and ancestors and revere the Buddhas and ancestors. We can uh, we can have devotion for for this lineage going back to the time of the Buddha, passing on the teachings of practice and verification for all of us. So our practice is a is a meditation practice, hearing teachings and putting them into practice, but we also need this kind of heart of devotion. Otherwise it becomes too like clinical and maybe dry. So that's why we have service with chanting and chanting the Buddhist words and dedicating the merit and <clears throat> taking refuge and paying homage to Buddhas, kind of like get into a kind of devotional spirit. Our practice naturally has that, but it's nice to remember that I think we, we need this kind of thing to open to the, such profound teachings. We need a kind of really um, open-hearted devotion to the teachings. Otherwise, it's more like just an instruction manual. Okay, we, here's the method, just do it. Yes, there's that, but we're more like, I don't even fully understand it, but, um, but I trust the, all, these, all these ancestors that have passed this on up to now. And this trusting devotional heart, uh, open to the teachings and the practice. <clears throat> so, one of, the, um, one of the myriad Zen expressions, strange Zen expressions, for reality or um, awakened mind is um, having nostrils. Very strange, but uh, it comes up again and again in Dogen's teachings, and it's the Chinese ancestors are talking about this. When, when Dogen sometimes is praising one of those ancestors, he'll say, like, he has some real nostrils, and uh, when he kind of is critiquing maybe someone who doesn't quite understand. He doesn't have any nostrils. <laughs> so it's one of these funny Zen expressions. And uh, we might take it to mean that the nostrils are the, um, the gateway for like, our life energy. That the air that gives us life passes through these nostrils. Our, our life force comes through these nostrils and we send out our life force through these nostrils, um, receiving and employing the um, life-giving air. So it's something like it's the, it's the gateway to our life force, um, but also the nostrils, as opposed to the nose, the nostrils are like just empty space. The nose is something, but the nostrils are like, you could say what is not the nose is the empty nostrils. So, so they're like, there's nothing but empty space there, but this empty space is where the life energy flows through. So that's my own imagination of why they use this phrase, nostrils for like awakened mind. In any case, I bring this up because um, <clears throat> Dogen, Dogen Zenji, commenting on this, on this line that I mentioned this morning, that the, the old ancestor Changsha says, the entire universe in the ten directions is the radiant light of the self. So Dogen um, has this essay called Radiant Light where he comments on this. And his comment here is that the self, Japanese, jiko, 
the self means the nostrils before your parents were born. So if you're wondering what the self is, I think we're talking here about the third type of self, right? <laughs> Poetically, in, in strange Zen language, what is this true self? It's, it's your nostrils before your parents were born. So if anybody ever asks you, when they use this word self in Zen, what is, what's the Zen understanding of self? You can just tell them, oh, it's your nostrils before your parents were born. <laughs> Which is just to say that there's another example of Dogen talking about the true self. <clears throat> your, your empty gateway to life energy, but not like this body's nostrils, but your true nostrils before, before you were born. And just to make it even a little bit more... Um, a little more strong statement, even before your parents were born. Those nostrils, that's your true self. So, um, <clears throat> so Menzan Zenji, as you heard, says, uh, how do we clarify and rely on this self-enjoyment samadhi? It's simply not obscuring the radiant light of yourself, not hiding, not clouding over the radiant light of yourself, which, as the third ancestor says, is empty, clear, and self-illuminating with no effort from, of mental power to make it that way. <clears throat> so what is not obscuring, not covering over the radiant light of the self? Because remember that the entire universe in ten directions is the radiant light of the self. So what we call obscuration must also be the radiant light of the self, right? The entire universe in ten directions. There's nothing that's not the radiant light of the self. So how, what could obscure it, right? What could obscure the radiant light of the self if everything is the radiant light of the self? Doesn't that seem like a paradox? We could understand this as um, the radiant light of the self from its own perspective can't really be obscured, can't really be hidden, because it includes everything. But it can seem to be obscured, it can seem to be hidden from our perspective, our individual perspective. I think sometimes we as people feel like, um, yes, I, sometimes I really feel like I'm hearing about this radiant light of the self and it's so clear and obvious. And then later on we're like, it seemed clear then, but where is it now? I'm just like distracted and confused and um, sleepy. The radiant, I, I can't find it anymore. Right? So at that, point, at that time we could say it seems to be obscured, it seems to be hidden. But then the teaching is that it's not really hidden, right? It just, um, it seems to be hidden by its own manifestation. The radiant light of the self is expressing itself constantly as as everything, as all experiences. But then some of those experiences that are the radiant light seem to also hide the radiant light. That's the strange predicament we find ourselves in as humans and as practitioners, right? So maybe we could say, if we hear, um, just don't obscure the radiant light of yourself, we think, oh, how can I stop obscuring it? It's not actually about removing anything, 
that's obscuring it. It's about seeing more clearly what obscuration actually is. Maybe we feel like our thoughts are obscuring the light, but um, you look more and more closely, you see that the thoughts are just emanations of light. They're, they're made of light, their nature is light. So this little shift of perspective, what seemed to be the obscuration is now just the um, manifestation of light. What seems to be the obscuration of light is truly just an expression of light. It's just, a, it's, just, uh, it's just two different perspectives on the same situation. And uh, how do we open to this new perspective? How do we shift that perspective? One way is right in the middle of the thought, this thought, this incessant thinking that seems to be like, I felt so in touch with the radiant light, but now I just have this commentary, this stream of thought pattern. I can't, um, I can't see behind it. I can't see the light behind it. I can't. So we can ask, again, these inquiry questions I think can be really helpful. We can ask, um, where is this thought happening? This thought that seems to be obscuring the light. Where is this thought? And we can see it's arising within awareness. It's not outside of awareness. Every thought is arising within the space of awareness, the big space. There is nothing outside of awareness that can obscure awareness. So we can explore this experientially. Where is this thought that's obscuring awareness? It's actually happening within awareness. So it's not really obscuring it. It just seemed to until I looked for where, where it is. It's right here in awareness, not something other than awareness. That's, that shifts the perspective. This subtle, subtle practice of investigation, of curiosity, of um, being really curious about our own moment-to-moment -moment experience. What is actually going on now? So where is this thought arising? Or another way to ask this question is, what is it that's aware of this thought? There's this thought, or say, or, a, or an intense painful sensation that seems to be obscuring the radiant light of the self. It seems to be obscuring our open, spacious, always okay awareness. It could be a bodily sensation, it could be a thought, it could be um, an emotion, or a mix of all of these, right, that seems to be, um, I can't find the light because this emotion so strong, this bodily sensation so strong, this thought is so incessant. So um, where are these arising? Another way to ask it is, what is aware of this thought? What is aware of this sensation? What is aware of this emotion? That asking is like, is learning the backward step that turns the light of awareness around the light of awareness that's zoomed in on this particular experience. It turns it back and it opens it up. What is aware of this thought? Awareness is aware of this thought. Shifts the perspective. Instead of the thought dominating the situation, this obscuring thought that's hiding awareness, just by asking this question sincerely and experientially, what's aware of this thought? Oh, there is an awareness of this thought. There must be, otherwise we don't, we're not aware of the thought. If there's a thought there's an, that we notice, then there's an awareness of it. And already now we're, um, now we're in touch with awareness again. The thoughts arising in awareness. It's not 
it's not obscuring it so strongly. It's not really hiding it. It's kind of, it's, a, it's, an, it's an expression of awareness. We might even say that the thought and the emotion and the bodily sensation are even celebrating awareness in the big sense that every experience actually is celebrating awareness. Or we could say this boundless, ungraspable, timeless, unlocated awareness. It illuminates itself and it celebrates itself. Every moment it celebrates itself by manifesting as thoughts and emotions and, and, and colors and sounds. Every possible experience, you could say, is the way that the radiant light of the self celebrates itself. Celebrates itself, or you could say, enjoys itself. The radiant light of the self is enjoying itself by being itself, but also by expressing itself as myriad experiences, even painful ones. This is a painful experience I'm having. I really don't like it and I'm resisting it. You could say that that painful experience is the radiant light of the self enjoying itself as a painful experience. Is that a hard one to <laughs> be open to? Could we, could we shift perspective in such a way this painful experience is the radiant light of the self enjoying itself as a painful experience. <clears throat> we could also say it as the radiant light of the self is so free. It's so free to express itself as any possible experience. It's free to express itself as great joy, but it's also free to express itself as great pain. If it couldn't, if the radiant light of the self couldn't express itself as pain, it wouldn't be totally free. It would be kind of limited. I can only be joyful experiences. It's a little bit limited. But if it's really completely free, it's like, I can even be, I, the radiant light of the self, can, can manifest as a painful experience. That's, that's true, complete freedom. <clears throat> So, continuing Menzan's Zazen manual. This is the meaning of Hongzhi Chanxi's expression in his, uh, in his poem called The Acupuncture Needle of Zazen. Zazen Shin is, um, means the acupuncture needle of Zazen, uh, which is it, one of these genre of um, zazen poems like you could say it's the it's the acupuncture needle that cures misunderstandings about zazen or in a very accurate way the needle that that is placed exactly where zazen is stuck so, so a lot of a lot of the um, chinese ancestors wrote these acupuncture needles for zazen placed right where the energy of zazen is stuck this, this um, needle uh, frees up the energy, the acupuncture needle, and, um, and that's, the, that's the name of these poems that free the stuck places of Sazen. So, <clears throat> Hongzhir, this, this silent illumination founder, um, wrote in his acupuncture needle for Sazen, the essential function of all the Buddhas the functional 
essence of all the Zen ancestors. This is poetry. The essential function of all the Buddhas. Essence is like the unmoving um, true self. The unchanging true self is like the essence. And the function is like the first kind of self, like the dependently arising self is functioning in the world. So, so uh, Hongzhir combines these. The essential function of all the Buddhas and the functional essence of all the ancestors is, what is it? It is knowing without touching things, illuminating without facing objects. This is the functional essence and the essential function of Zazen. It's a kind of knowing, a cognizance, an awareness that knows without um, touching things. It's a knowing that doesn't contact objects. Why doesn't it contact, touch objects? Because there's nothing outside of itself to touch. It doesn't have any edges or boundaries. This kind of knowing, this kind of awareness. If it doesn't have any edges, there can't be anything outside itself. And if there's nothing outside itself, it can't touch anything. Can you follow that? In order to touch something, that something has to be external. It doesn't touch anything because everything is included within itself. I think this is very beautiful Zazen instruction. Very, very um, to the point. <laughs> An acupuncture needle that goes right to the, to the point, the essential point. So, the essential function of all the Buddhas and the functional essence of all the Zen ancestors is simply knowing without touching any things. It is illuminating without facing objects. It's just another way of saying knowing without touching things is illuminating without facing objects. Why doesn't it face objects? Because there are no objects separate from the subject of illuminating. It's an illumination that's not divided into a subject that faces an object. It's an all-inclusive illumination. One time in a, some of you might have heard me tell this story, in an early session, Tassahara, in the monastery practice period, we were doing lots of sashins, so we could get very settled. It's helpful to sit all day to, in order to open to the light. So I'd sit all day for many days, and at some point, um, and it happened to be a sashin when I was really, in my 20s, I was really um, want to practice and verify this matter, so I would, um, I was very gung-ho in my early Zen days, so I, just like here, we'd have like the breaks after meals, and instead of just wandering around or resting and sort of, um, I would just go right back to the Zendo, right after the, the, during the breaks, to just stay present, stay present. Like breaks were a little bit too distracting for me. <laughs> you might have noticed that too, you know? Breaks can be distracting. No breaks. So it was, Somehow, you know, looking back, maybe it was a little too, I was being a little too pushy or something with myself. But in fact, it, something happened in this session. It's just trying to be very diligent. And um, it was a long time ago, so I don't quite remember. But um, 
something shifted in, in, a, in a way that I felt like I had to tell my teacher right away. And um, I couldn't wait for Dokusan. So I, um, I just caught him on the path, walking on the path. Can I talk to you for a minute? Sure. Something, something's shifting in Zazen. Um, I, I can't quite, he said, try to describe it. And I tried to describe it. You know, you, you can't describe these things so well, right? Especially early on in my practice. And um, whatever I said, I don't remember what I said, but whatever I said, he said to me, um, well, can anything touch it? I thought that was a very strange question. Whatever this experience, the Zazen experience, can anything touch it? And um, so I went back and kind of sat with that question. And, uh, and then it was a very helpful question. For it, kind of, it helped open up whatever it was. Because I, I think what he was implying that if anything can touch it, then there's some, some duality there. There's, um, it's something that's conditioned and fragile, and something that's dependent and that can be touched from the outside, touched by my doubts about it, touched by um, um, my trying to hold on to it, since it's so nice. All these ways that um, something could touch it. Maybe I, as the small self, get a hold of it. I think that's what he meant, can anything touch it? So really exploring, if we have some special experience in Zazen, this is a good question that, that you, can, you can apply. Can anything touch it? Say, yes, I just, nobody, please nobody cough, or you will destroy this perfect Zazen experience. If the air conditioner comes on right now, I'll scream. <laughs> <laughs> because it will, it will destroy this perfect peace. So that means like the, if the air conditioner can touch it, then it's, it's kind of limited. We want the zazen that the air conditioner can't touch. You know what I mean? So, um, so later I heard this poem of Chang of um, Hongzhu, and um, I think it's pointing the same direction. <clears throat> The essential function of all the Buddhas and the functional essence of all the ancestors is a kind of knowing. And you can translate this Chinese character as knowing or awareness. It's the Sanskrit jnana. It's the Tibetan um, yeshe, non-dual awareness. It's a knowing without touching things, a knowing that doesn't touch anything and nothing touches it because it's all-inclusive. There's nothing external to it. It's illuminating without facing objects because there's nothing external, no objects external to face. So that's Menzan saying, that's how Hongzhir said it. And then Menzan goes on, when you practice and learn the reality of Zazen, this kind of Zazen, thoroughly, the frozen blockage of illusory mind will naturally melt away. What is the, the frozen blockage of illusory mind? We might call that the, um, the second type of self, the second type of reified, um, singular, permanent, uh, independent, separate entity of me, the me that like, please don't bother me. <laughs> That's the frozen blockage of illusory mind. And when we practice zazen, it will naturally melt away, like dissolve. Dissolve into what? 
into the radiant light of the self where it already actually is, is where it already dwells. <clears throat> and then Menzan says, if you think that you have cut off illusory mind, instead of simply clarifying how illusory mind melts, illusory mind will come up again as though you had cut the stem of a blade of grass or cut the trunk of a tree but left a root alive. This is very natural that this happens. Can you follow? <clears throat> so we might feel like um, here's this sense of frozen blockage. It's a great way of talking about how we sometimes feel. Ah, if I could just stop these thoughts, then I could find the radiant light of the self. Stop them! Kokyo, I said stop them! <laughs> it's about the frozen block blockage of illusory mind. Just cut them off. How do I cut them off? Just stop. Just, um, here comes a thought. Stop it! <laughs> it's like cutting it off. And we might say, it's like cutting the stem of the grass. It's like mowing the lawn. It's a kind of like cutting on the surface, right? Just stop it. Okay, now I'm back in present. Good, good, I'm present now. But actually, oh, here's another thought. It's because I cut the, I cut the stem, but the root was still there. So the root, uh, the root sprouts another blade of grass. Oh, let's cut that one off. Okay, good, good, let's go. But here's another one, cut that one off. Here's another one, cut that off. Here's another, cut that off. Even, even when we talk about letting go of thoughts, which we often do in Zen, if, if thinking arises, thinking about the past and future, just um, let it go, drop it, is a good practice and it's a valid practice and it does sometimes return us to the present. But even that letting go of of thought is, um, I would say, kind of like cutting the stem, but the root is still there. We're not really dealing with the root, right? It's just a, it's a simple, it's a simple practice, and I think that's why we offer it as a teaching. Just let go of the thinking. It's easier to talk about than the radiant light of the self. It's an easier method. Thinking arises. I notice the thinking. Okay, now just let it go, if I if I can, let it go and return to the present. It's not an invalid practice, but it's a, from a deeper perspective, it's a little bit like cutting the, mowing the lawn, and then the lawn grows back again. Whereas what is, um, what is like, you know, pulling out the root in this case? Any guesses how we pull out the root instead of just cutting the, cutting the grass? How would, we, how would we actually like pull out the root so that it won't grow back in the same way? Anybody want to guess? We've already been talking about it all day. That's right. Recognizing that the grass itself is the radiant light of the self. That's how I would understand uprooting the, the root. <clears throat> it's, an, it's a shift of understanding. See how that's different than actually just letting go of the thought. It's going to the, to the root of what is a thought, actually. A thought is the radiant light of the self. See, seeing that, you know, we can hear these words, but hopefully, um, these words are pointing to an actual experience, a very subtle experience that's seeing that when we look for what is any experience at all, all we find in the end is awareness itself. These colors that we're seeing 
are just knowing, they're knowing of color. These sounds that we're hearing, there's no sound in addition to the knowing of it. These bodily sensations we have, there's no sensation other than awareness of it. So this, you know, practicing, investigating this uh, verifies this truth um, again and again and again <clears throat> so that we're not fooled by thoughts in the same way, thinking that there's something external to awareness that needs to be cut off. Still we can let go of thoughts. It's, it's um, valuable practice, but um, it's a temporary kind of measure. They will come up again uh, due to the conditions that gives rise to thoughts. But we might say, if we see, if we, if we pull out the root, which um, Constance is saying, by seeing that the thoughts are actually the radiant light of the self, they still will probably come up again. So just like if we cut the grass, they still can, will come up again because that's the condi we're conditioned that way. But when they come up again, it's like a little bit different than it was because now we see that the thoughts are less problematic. It's just these thoughts, these repetitive thoughts keep coming up just because they're conditioned to, to do so. It's just the way that the first type of self works. It's just conditioned. And it's okay. If I know that these thoughts are the radiant light of the self, I have a different relationship to them. I don't need to cut them off. They're less problematic. And this is like the good news. This is, now it's like thoughts can be included within zazen and they don't disturb it so much. And because we're not trying to cut them off, they have less energy to come up. The more we try to cut them, maybe the faster they grow, but the more we're just like, you're allowed here, your thoughts and feelings. You're allowed to arise within the space of the self. Um, <clears throat> everything's allowed. And I, you know, I better allow it because um, I can't control it anyway. And the more I allow it, the more the thoughts are like, well, if you're not cutting us off, then um, this game is, is not as interesting. <laughs> we might just take a rest. It's kind of like if you, if you keep throwing the stick for the dog to get, it's going to get it and run back to you and wants to keep playing the game. And like, I, now I have to throw it again and keep coming back. I have to throw it again. But if you just drop the stick, it'll, it'll um, be there for a while waiting for you to throw it again. And it's like, you're not going to throw it again? Well, then I'll just take a nap on the beach here. <laughs> it's like that. If we keep trying to cut the thoughts, that like to play that game with us. I'm tired of this game. Why don't you just do whatever you want, thoughts? Oh, we'll just take a nap then. Sometimes like that. <clears throat> so, uh, so Menzon says, if you think that you've cut off illusory mind, instead of simply clarifying how illusory mind melts, illusory mind will come up again, as though you cut the stem of a blade of grass or the trunk of a tree and left the root alive. This is very natural. For this reason, when you practice the Buddha Dharma, you must study and clarify the essence of practice and verification of the Buddhas and ancestors under the guidance of a true teacher to whom the Dharma has been correctly transmitted. 
Otherwise, you'll be wasting your time, no matter how long or hard you practice. <sighs> Strong statement. So I think that's part of this lineage of ancestors, is, is that um, anyone can say, just be present and let go of your thoughts. Um, but then, uh, maybe Menzan, if we understand him to be speaking quite strictly, he'd say, even that's ultimately kind of a waste of time from this really ultimate perspective. We really have to clarify these. It's quite a subtle, subtle points that are being made here. It's understanding, it's clarifying. Our, our, our ancient um, Chinese ancestor, Shuto Sekito Kisen, um, whose poem we recited this morning, The Harmony of Difference and Equality, that's, he's one of our lineage ancestors. And he said something like, um, <clears throat> how did he say it? The, um, our Dharma gate, our Zen Dharma gate, is not a matter of, um, of concentration practice, that kind of meditation. It's, um, it's simply um, knowing and seeing the reality of <clears throat> our true nature, something like this. It's not a, a meditative concentration practice. You could say letting go of thoughts is a practice to calm the mind and concentrate the mind. And it's a valid practice, and we can do that. And at the same time, we can have this understanding that um, deepens the practice. You could say, um, letting go of thoughts is a, is a practice, calm abiding, shamatha in Sanskrit, means calm abiding practice, calms the mind, settles the mind. And then there's this other practice called um, you know, insight or clear seeing, vipassana, and uh, they're usually taught as a pair, shamatha, we can let go of thought to start to calm the mind. Let go of thought, let go of thought. And then the calmer we get and the more present the mind is, then we can start looking, seeing what are these thoughts? What is the nature of these thoughts that we're letting go of again and again? That, that, then we have the union of calm abiding and insight, the union of shamatha and vipassana, the Buddha teaches. <clears throat> Anything you'd like to bring up about how to... Uh, to clarify and rely on this samadhi. Yes. 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 That's a good one. It's nice to correlate all these teachings that we of our tradition. So uh, our ancestor Dungshan Tozan Ryokai wrote the Jewel Mirror Samadhi that we'll chant tomorrow morning. And as we heard, Menzhan said earlier. This jewel mirror samadhi is another name for self-enjoyment samadhi. And in this jewel mirror samadhi poem, the song of the jewel mirror samadhi, Dungshan says, um, turning away and touching are both wrong, for it's like a massive fire. What is like a massive fire? The jewel mirror samadhi, the, the self-enjoyment samadhi, the radiant light of the self. It's so radiant that it's like a massive fire. And then this image, right? Turning away from this fire is um, wrong. <laughs> why, is, why is that? Because um, then we don't appreciate it. Then we're just back into like cutting the stems of the grass or something again. So don't turn away from it. This is our true nature. Don't turn away from our true 
but touching is also wrong. To touch this true nature is um, is uh, is wrong because it's not a thing that can be touched. In a way, both turning away and touching are both based on um, on imagining that it's some kind of thing. Actually, you can't. You can only turn away from things, and you can only touch things. So, like this massive fire, we think it's. We might think that it's something, even subtly, some sort of state, some sort of orb of bright presence, some kind of like God that we can talk to, some kind of uh, <clears throat> me, big me. So any way that we uh, thingify it, even subtly thingify it, then as soon as we've done that, then we're in, inevitably in this realm of let's touch it. <laughs> Which means, means like, get a hold of it. I think it's one way to see that. Um, to try to grasp the radiant light of the self is wrong. It's, it's, it's not like it's bad, it's just that it's, um, it's impossible. <laughs> it's, it's an incorrect understanding of that radiant light. And to turn away from it is also, it's not bad, but it's just um, an incorrect understanding. So, and this image that it's like a massive fire. This fire is like, you know, if you touch fire, it will burn us. But if you turn away from it, if you go totally away from fire, you get really cold. So kind of like stay in the presence of this fire without turning away or touching. So yes, thank you. Yeah, very, very similar to um, uh, knowing without touching things, as Hollinger says. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so I always eat, I eat stuff when I have too much time that I just waste it. Yes. So to that, I'm researching it like you were avoiding. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know which is it. Yes, <laughs> yes, no. It's many things could be said here, right? Because you could say my practice at that time was a little contrived. And maybe any kind of formal practice is a little contrived, right? We set up all these things to set up a schedule to, you know, wear these funny clothes and chant these funny things. You could say from a certain perspective, contrived in the sense of we're making up something and everything is radiant light of the self, it's true. But the Buddhas and ancestors have always seemed to do that, um, to kind of, they're willing to kind of contrive some practice in order to, um, <clears throat> it's like a skillful means, in order to really more clearly um, open to reality. Reality is always present, but um, like in my example, that sashin, it was interesting because I've been doing a lot of other sashins, but it, it could be coincidence, but it happened to be this one where I was like, this one, I'm really going to go for it. Right? That one was where something shifted more than others. And we hear lots of stories like this from the ancestors. So I almost hesitate to say it because um, we don't want to say that some contrived activity makes some special thing happen because it's, this is a non-contrived radiant light. And yet, like Shakyamuni Buddha, he had, you could say, the extreme of contrived practice. He was like, fasting and um, not sleeping and, and torturing himself, you know, almost to, to the point of death, as, the story, as he tells the story. And so he's kind of saying afterwards, he's like, 
it was a little too contrived or worse, you know, it's like, but somehow um, that was like part of the conditions for them, for him to then say, okay, now I'm going to actually relax a little, but I'm still not going to move the night under the Bodhi tree, he said. I'm, I'm, first I'm going to eat some and feel kind of like nourished and energetic, and now I'm not going to get up from under the Bodhi tree until I've clarified the great matter. So that was kind of contrived too, kind of pushy, but something happened that was the basis for what we call Buddha Dharma all the way up to today. So it's tricky, right? It wasn't because, it wasn't like he created or he contrived some awakening, but um, in this great diligence and devotion, um, a non-contrived reality was revealed. So, of course, the session is like we set up all these things. Let's be silent. Let's follow the schedule. Let's do all these forms to, to keep us coming back to the present. Because it does help, conventionally speaking. And so does a break. <laughs> and so does a break sometimes. Yes. Yeah, so, and each person's different. So, we, so I think that's, as we practice more and more, we, we find what, um, there's no formula. For, that works for everybody, and there's no formula that works for each person for their whole life. So, so we have times more intensive practice, times more relaxed practice, and um, so in a way, and, and nobody can, t I mean in a way, Sashin, we kind of agree on some certain things that we're all kind of trying to practice together. It's pretty good, they're general agreements, but we don't say, um, don't take a break, for example. So then each person, um, in a way, the, the hard part is what's not prescribed. The hard part is each individual being like ruthlessly honest with themselves. What you know? What is my most authentic practice in this moment? In this moment? In this moment? And if there's no formula, yeah. Next, yes. It is. It's a hard part. I'll use the bonfire. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, is it? Can the second? Does the second self ever kind of conjure that mentally? Mentally. And then one would reach to touch it, but then it's like you're right back physical sense. Like the or, like the like the bonfires are kind of mentally constructed. Are, yeah, like a structure. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I think we do that a lot. Or blockade created by second self, or mm. as you're approaching the melting into the third self, is the second can the second self definitely reach out yeah. or distance it? Yes, for sure. Or both of those things happen mm -hmm. simultaneously. So yeah, yeah. The, um, and sometimes it said, like, the, the more we melt into the true self, the more, um, the, in a way, the, for some people, but maybe in general, the more the second type of self, the more we start to melt into the true third type of self, the more the second type of contrived, um, imagined self gets, seems to get stronger and stronger. <clears throat> So, like the story of Shakyamuni Buddha, he was this amazing yogi practitioner. He'd just done so much meditation already. But when he made this resolve, like, tonight I'm going to, like, clarify it all, and I'm not going to get up until I do. Like, like wow, now he's really cooking like a, like a blazing fire, right? That's when so-called Mara, right? The stories of Mara is like all these demons, like, really, really press in on him. They were kind of around before. This is a good yogi, but like when he's like 
This is, I'm gonna be a Buddha tonight. Okay, okay, host of Mara, time to put on your weapons. Like, we got a, we got a Bodhisattva about to become a Buddha. Let's get him. <laughs> and you could say that's basically the, the second type of self is Mara, like really pulling out all the, the heavy duty weapons. <laughs> and, um, and I think we find that, yeah. The, <clears throat> the, um, we don't have it here, but often the, the, um, the altars in, um, in Zen temples are called um, in Japanese shumidan, that is a, is a transliteration of um, sumaru altar, shumidan. Uh, so they're designed to look like not sumaru, which is the center of the Buddhist cosmos, and um, and the the way they look like that, according to like the, the Abhidharma teachings and pictures of Mount Sumeru, it's like got these slopes on the bottom, and um, and then it starts to get steeper and steeper, and as it as the mountain gets higher and higher, this the steepness starts to even go kind of outward like this, and so the altars, if you, like Japanese and Chinese temples. The, they usually have a bottom that slopes up like this, and then they have some vertical, and they have a sloping top that goes the other way, because that's how Mount Sumeru looks. And uh, and one way of thinking about that, and the kind of the gods, the devas, live on the in these palaces on the top of the Mount Sumeru, but to get up there, and then above them is like you know eventually the Buddhas, but climbing up this mountain in the center of the universe, it gets steeper and steeper as you get higher and higher until you're like upside down. You're like climbing, you're like scaling those rocks kind of backward. It's so steep that it's like almost impossible. So I think that's maybe like the Buddhist story too. The, the further along we go, it seems like the obstacles are bigger. But really, these obstacles, as we've heard, right, are just the display of the radiant light of the self. And, um, but you could say the... Um, the job, the job description of the second type of self, um, when that second type of self was hired, it, had, it agreed to this job description. And the job description says, your job is to like, maintain yourself at, all, at any cost. But I'm just an illusion. Yes, but your job, you have this particular illusion, your job description, is um, don't, um, don't let the radiant light of the self see through you because then you'll be out of a job, right? <laughs> I, you know, that would be the worst. You've agreed to maintain this job and your way to do it is, the way to maintain your job is um, do anything you want, but just don't let the radiant light of the true self understand who you are. If you do, you're fired. <laughs> or, rather than fired, you would just dissolve <laughs> into the true self. That is what's, what you're made of. So, sometimes it's kind of like, uh, if we're really like wallowing in delusion, that, that self is like, wow, I'm getting paid well for like not doing very much. This is really easy. But like, if you, if you kind of sit down under a Bodhi tree, then that one is like, uh-oh, I gotta get to work now. And in all these various ways, like maybe like the way that you're bringing up, one of the ways it gets to work is like, 
I got it, the radiant light of the self, my true nature. I got a hold of it, just keep it here. This is it, I got it, enlightenment. Nothing, <laughs> nothing can mess with me anymore. I'm a Buddha, N nobody better tell me otherwise now. <laughs> like that, that's it. Oh, it's good, it's getting, it's, it's getting, um, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's doing its job well. You shouldn't be a trophy. What's that? You shouldn't be a trophy. Yeah. yeah, I should be given a trophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a trophy. The enlightenment trophy. Because yeah. enlightenment's not good enough. <laughs> if it, if it, you know, complete peace and freedom is fine, but what's more important is the trophy. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Well then, how about some good old Zazen? <laughs> Can't go wrong with that. I mean, could go wrong with that. <laughs> but it can't go wrong with itself. Trust. How can we, how can we trust this uh, more and more deeply? That's all, all this talk about it and all this sitting about it is to um, help us to um, open to it more and more. So it sounds less like crazy talk and crazy practice that our friends think we're like, came out to the country here, we're torturing ourselves without moving like this. But um, we're starting to trust um, this is the most sane thing you could ever do.